Last week we considered what God's Word has to say about His desire that we grow up spiritually. That is an individual responsibility that we each have. You can't put it off on anyone else. God calls us to grow up in the faith. And last week we used a we gave out a spiritual road map. If you were here, then you received this. And we encouraged you to be able to use this in your grace group, in your Bible study, to go in and, and basically take a look at your own life and ask yourself, how can, how can I grow? Now you say, okay, well, I, w- I missed last week. Where can I get one of these? And I'm glad that you asked. Right on the other side of this wall is an information table, and you'll find them sitting right there in the middle of the table. And I know because I put them there myself. So unless someone decided they wanted them all, There are some up there for you. And I'd encourage you to take this and look at it and evaluate your own life. And then perhaps in your grace group or in your Bible study, find one or two areas that you can look at and go, you know what, here's an area that I really need to grow in this year. And then find someone in your group, not your husband, not your wife, find someone in your group who's not your spouse and ask him, would you please hold me accountable to this, pray for me, and ask me about it from time to time just so that I have that uh, incentive, I guess, to, to move forward and to grow up my, in my faith because that's part of who I am in Christ and it's part of God's calling in my life. Now, even though spiritual maturity is your personal responsibility, the church has a part in it. And that's where we want to focus this morning. One of the core values of Grace Fellowship states... Every Christ follower has a personal responsibility to take ownership for his or her own spiritual growth while we as a church have a responsibility to provide the inspiration, information, and resources necessary for that growth to occur. Now you can grow on your own to a certain extent for sure. If you were on a desert island with just you and your Bible and God, you'd have enough to continue to grow spiritually. But the church is important. The way God designed it is he didn't design us to go it alone. He didn't design us to be lone rangers. He designed us to be in community, in the body of Christ. And that's a key part of helping us grow. Others need you. And you, quite frankly, need others. God calls us to grow up, but he calls us to grow up together. And that's a significant step. From last week to this week, me taking personal responsibility in my life, I'm responsible for my spiritual growth, and then placing myself in a community of faith where that growth, the possibilities of growing are even greater. So how can we grow up better together? Well, I'm going to suggest three things to you this morning, and I hope that you will find them helpful and biblical. And the first is this, if we're going to grow together, then we need to grow in unity. If we're going to grow together, we need to grow in unity. Growing together requires togetherness. That should be pretty obvious. That's kind of what it means. There's an interdependence among us. We're not independent, and we're not independent together. We're interdependent with one another. This is what God's Word says. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, 
So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now you notice that's in all caps, and that's on purpose. Paul didn't write it like that, but I wanted the emphasis to come to you. Because that's not often the way we think about it. We understand that we belong to God, but the concept of belonging to one another... That can sometimes be a foreign concept. We see community as one of those optional things. I can skip about merrily on my Christian life, and I really don't need the church. I don't need other people. It's me and God against the world, but that's not the way God designed it. God put us in a community, in a body, because it is there that we have the best opportunity to grow and to become more like Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for the church to be one. This is part of what he prayed. My prayer is not for them alone. That is, the current disciples that he had brought around him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me, And I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see the significance of the unity of the body of Christ that is part of our testimony to the world? But just as spiritual growth isn't automatic, neither is spiritual unity. Notice what Paul writes. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at 16 verses there, but we're not going to read them all together. But if you'll open up there, we'll be coming back and back and back again so that you can see these verses. We'll put the words up on the screen for you so that you'll have them, but we want you to be able to see that what you have there corresponds to what's on the screen and give you an opportunity perhaps to write a note or or draw an asterisk or something when God says something significant to you about his word. Now that most of you found Ephesians 4, let me thank God for this word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word, for its power, for its authority in our lives, for the truth that it is. May it speak to us and change us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at that first verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. As a prisoner of the Lord. When we take a look at that, we need to recognize that Paul was a man who understood suffering. Paul's a man who had planted many churches and then had to go back and try to help them figure out what it meant to live together in unity. But he writes them in chains. He writes the Ephesian church in chains. He's under arrest. But when he writes them, he doesn't say, Oh, woe is me. I'm suffering so bad over here. Would you please pray for me? Because it's just so bad. That's not the tone of any of Paul's letters, any of those prison epistles. Instead, when he writes... He's writing to urge them, to literally plead with them to live a life worthy of their high calling. To let their lives match their calling. Not to live to the least common 
denominator. See, I do remember something about math. We, would, we wouldn't dare say this, or at least not many of us, but sometimes our opinion about living the Christian life is, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get by? That's the kind of attitude that, that some students take into class. As a freshman in college, that was it. I just want, what's the bare minimum? Just to skate by. How, how can I just get a C? That's all I'm looking for is just to get a C and get out of your class. As a matter of fact, I had one for, I, I'm terrible at math, terrible at math. And when I went to one class, I, um, I'd already flunked one math class after having gone through a remedial math class. And so I finally, I started, I said, I'm determined, I, well, I got to pass. I'm determined to pass. And so every day after class, I would go to the teaching assistant's office. I'd just follow him right to his office. And I'd sit there and I'd say, okay. He goes, well, what didn't you understand? I said, well, let's start with good morning class. We're glad you're here. I was lost after that. And so he began to go through it all with me. And finally, about halfway through the semester, he said, listen, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll leave me alone, I'll give you a C. <laughs> I, was, I was all for that. So I didn't bother him anymore, and I got my C. But see, that was my attitude. I, all I want is a C. But is that what we hear Paul saying here? No, Paul's saying, listen, I'm urging you. With every fiber of my being, I'm pleading with you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus. This high calling to live at a higher level, to think at a higher level, to speak at a higher level, to act at a higher level. Don't settle for the least common denominator. What can I do just to get by and somehow be acceptable to God? That's part of what it means to have unity in the church. You see, if we're all trying to live down here at a sea, then not a whole lot gets done, and our attitudes don't change. But Paul says part of unity in the church requires a change of attitude. Notice, notice verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, unity does not grow well and soil is contaminated by pride or gossip or slander or greed or a hunger for power. The Bible helps us to understand the ingredients that are necessary for unity in the life of the church. And Paul mentions them here. Being completely humble and gentle. That is not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Not thinking of ourselves ahead of other people. In fact, in, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he says these, this, this, these are eye-opening words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. One person has said that humility is not thinking of yourself less than you should. It's thinking of yourself less. You see the difference? It's not considering ourselves not worth the, the dirt on the soles of our feet. It's actually not even considering ourselves that much at all. That we're constantly, on the, the, constantly filled with the desire to bless God and to bless others. 
We're urged to be patient with each other. And that word in patience, maybe if you've got the King James, you may have the translation long-suffering. Well, that's what patience is. It's long-suffering. That's why it's so hard to be patient because we don't like to suffer. But if you're sitting in a car in Atlanta traffic, patience requires a little suffering. You've got to sit there and listen to whoever's on the radio and watch the people, you know, putting on makeup and eating a cheeseburger and and texting on their cell phone all at the same time. This is a kind of, you know, that's what it is. It's just long-suffering. And then, and then bearing with each other. You know what bearing with each other means? It means putting up with each other. Now, why? Why? Because it's, it's not that we overlook other people's sins or, or bad habits or, or harmful behaviors. Instead, we understand that spiritual growth is a process. And we're not all there yet. As a matter of fact, none of us are there yet. And there may be people who are more spiritually mature who look at you and are impatient with you and wondering what's wrong with you because you don't get it. And you may be looking at people that you, for, uh, about whom you're more spiritually mature and you look at them and you wonder what's wrong with them. Why don't they get it? And what Paul says is, listen, you need to be completely humble and gentle. Don't be harsh. Don't be rude. You need to be patient. Understanding people are different places in their spiritual wall. And you need, you need to bear with one another. Be, now, I know the word tolerant has gotten a, a bad rap out in the politically correct world. But the word tolerant is, very, is a good word. Don't let the church give up that word to the world. To tolerate someone doesn't mean you agree with them. And it doesn't mean that you're willing to, to, to live with destructive or sinful behavior. It simply means you understand that they are not there yet. And that comes with humility, understanding that you are not there yet. He goes on, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We said unity is not automatic. It's not easy either. That's why Paul says make every effort. It's work to have unity in the life of the church. It requires personal effort on your part. You don't want to sit back and say, okay, everybody else, you work at it. I'll just kick it on cruise control. No, it requires effort on everybody's part. It means that we put our personal preferences on the back burner and we adopt kingdom preferences instead. As Paul wrote here in verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You get this concept of unity here? What Paul is saying is you shouldn't just have unity in the life of the church so that you don't rock the boat so that you calm the waves, but because it reflects the character of God himself and the character of our calling. It is not a disparate calling. It is not, we don't believe a a lot of variety of things. We have a unity where it matters. Unity 
My dear friend, how calm has gone, gone to be with the Lord, always said, unity is not the same as uniformity. And he was right. Because we're not all the same. We have different gifts. We have different personalities. We have different preferences, likes and dislikes. Some of us are night people. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are type A personalities. And some may be all that type Z, and we don't even know what type Z is. We're different. But somehow God has knit us together in a fascinating way where we need each other. And that unity comes despite our diversity. And that unity comes because it matches the character of God and His calling. And so the first thing that we encounter here in Ephesians 4 is that if we're going to grow together, then we have to grow in unity. And this is what I tell couples. I just had pre-marriage counseling yesterday. If, if we are growing closer to God individually, if we're growing closer to God, and we're all doing that, guess what? We're also growing closer to one another. Second truth is this. If we're going to grow together, then we need to grow in serving. We need to grow in serving. Spiritual growth in our individual lives and in the life of our church means that we're thinking and acting more like Jesus with each passing day. Well, how did Jesus act? How did he think? Well, we get a little hint in Mark 10, 45, when Jesus says this, For the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is key. This is, this is helpful for us to understand. We just sang, Sing to the King who is worthy of praise. And indeed, Jesus is. The people were right when they came out and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus deserved that and more. And yet, he says of himself that he came to serve and not to be served. Probably the the most famous emblem of the Christian faith is the cross. And understandably, because it was on the cross that our, our sins were paid for. The price was paid for our sins. And yet many have argued that perhaps the symbol of Christianity should not so much be the cross as the towel and the basin. As Jesus took off his outer robe and lowered himself to wash the feet of his disciples. Dirty, smelly, nobody else in the room was willing to do it. No servant was contracted to do it. Any of those men could have gotten up and done exactly what Jesus did. But you see, when they looked at themselves, they said, that's not my job. I'm not going to do that. That's gross. Well, I don't know if they used gross back in Aramaic or not. But, but Jesus did. He served them. And what he tells us is the service went all the way to the cross where Jesus paid the ultimate price to serve us. Well, then Paul picks up on that in Philippians chapter 2 and says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being poured out, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, if the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served, and we're to adopt the attitude of Christ, then that means we adopt the attitude of a servant. And that is necessary in the body of Christ as we serve one another and also as we serve out in the world. When each of us is using the giftedness that God has given to us and the passions that God has given to us, then the church becomes what we talked about last week, both effective and productive for the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are sitting out there and going, well, that's easy for you to say. I could never stand up in front of a few hundred people and talk. I could never do what you do. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know, uh, you know, I don't have all the books that you have or the learning that you have. I, when I get up in front of people, I just freeze up. And you go, I can't do what you do, and therefore, I'm unimportant. Well, I want to tell you, that's a lie straight from Satan himself. I don't know how you're gifted. I know how some of you are gifted. But I do know this. Your gifts are important. Your gifts are vital. Last week, for those of you who were here, you know that we were having some, some sound system problems. And we, we had no idea what it was going to be. We were able to, Tom Robinson was able to get back there and plug and replug and try to get things. So we were actually just running out of the subwoofers. And so that's why things didn't sound quite right last Sunday if you were here. I didn't have a cold. It was that. You know what the problem was? Somehow, a little switch on the box, had gotten flipped from on to off. It's a power strip. It may be the cheapest of the components in that box. And yet when it went out, it affected everything else. And we were able to get through and to do, you know, to have, to have a worship service and have the sound and have it all. But it wasn't where it could have been. And that's exactly what we have to see about our own lives. We may think, in the whole kingdom of God, I'm a power strip. In the whole kingdom of God, I'm a little button. And I'm insignificant. And what I do doesn't matter. But that's not how God sees it. In fact, this is pretty neat. Look in verse, verse, uh, we're still in Ephesians 4, verse 7 and following. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why he says, when he ascended on high, he laid captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. You are gifted. What's more, those gifts come straight from Jesus. They're hand-picked for you. Now, I don't know how some of you do your shopping around Christmas time. Some of you, it's just like whatever's on sale and on the front row, that's what I'm buying and I'm getting out of here. But others of you are very diligent to find just the right gift for just the right person. And you will search and search and search all the way up to Christmas Eve to find that perfect Christmas gift to fit that perfect person. What you need to understand is that Jesus is just as diligent 
to find the right gift for you. And maybe he didn't give you a singing voice or a speaking voice. Maybe he didn't give you administrative gifts. But whatever he gave you, it is intentional. And he's given it to you to use for the glory of God and the growth of the kingdom. This is what the Bible says about gifts. And I'm just going to throw some verses out there just to reinforce my argument. In Romans 12, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. He gives them to each one just as he determines. Again, it's not haphazard. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And in 1 Peter 4, 10, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Don't sit there and compare your gifts to someone else's gifts because there's always someone else who seems to have a little bit more than you do. No, look at what God has given you and say, what, what can I do in the kingdom with this? What can I do to serve others with this? How can I put this giftedness, no matter how small and insignificant it might be, how can I put this to practice, into practice for the kingdom? Because that, according to the scripture, is why it was given to you. Now, you may have gotten a little confused when we were reading about Jesus ascending and descending and leading a host of captives and giving out gifts to men, and you're reading that and going, What's all, what all is that about? Well, it's a reference from the Apostle Paul to uh, Psalm 68. But I'm going to tell you real briefly what it means. I can do it in one paragraph because it's really not that confusing. It is an image to get in your mind, an image of a conquering king. You see, back then, there was a season that kings went to war. And they would have their capital city, and, and they would go out to war against this other city. They may have been fighting for, for years on end. But the king would go, and they would go, and they'd fight. And then if the king won, then he would lead a procession, a parade, back into the city. And he would lead the parade. And it was like the rest of them were the train of his robe behind him. Just like a bridal. Bride has that train that follows her. The longer the train, the greater the victory. And so the king would come into the city. And he'd be leading the conquering army in. And in there behind the army, there would be the captives who had been set free. Men and women who had been captured by the opposing army, by the opposing city or, or country, who had been held in captive, now set free and marching back into the city as free men and women. And behind them, behind them, the spoils of war, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the sheep, the cattle, all those things that were taken from that opposing city being brought into the city. And the king would very often then distribute to citizens of his kingdom gifts 
from that which he'd captured. Now, what are we to get from this? What Paul is trying to do is to give us an image of Jesus as a conquering king who comes in in victory, and he did. He conquered death and hell. That's what we celebrate this season, this Passion Week, his conquering death and hell, setting captives free, which is exactly what he said he was going to do when he showed up and preached his first sermon, and then giving gifts to men. What we have, all that we have, and especially this morning talking about the giftedness that we have, comes from our conquering king. And they were given for a reason. They were given to equip the church. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12 to mention some of the gifts. These gifts he's mentioning have specifically, because we're talking about serving, remember? These gifts particularly have a, a reference to equipping people to serve. He says in verse 11 and 12, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, that's not all that he gave, but there were some to whom God gave these gifts of leadership in the life of the church. And the purpose of giving those gifts were not that they could lord it over other people or so that they could feel really proud that they got these great gifts. But the whole purpose of giving men these gifts was for them to equip the saints, to equip the holy ones, to equip the church for works of service. If you ever wondered if there was a call in Scripture for you to serve, absolutely. And there's an environment in which that is fostered, and that environment is the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers are just some of the gifts, but they were given for a purpose, to prepare the church to serve. Part of the maturing process is serving. And you can tell a lot about the heart of a believer by whether or not they serve. But it's also true you can tell a lot about the heart of a church by how they serve. And that's one of the joys that I have as pastor is that so many of you individually are serving. But that also, as groups, you're serving. Because it says something about the heartbeat of this church. In other words, you can't just talk about faith, hope, and love. It's got to be expressed. James makes that perfectly clear in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, he says, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and fed but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's a bold statement. But what it's saying is we reveal, the, it's a, the, it validates our faith when it has actions that accompany it. And the action should not be that I show up here on Sunday morning. That's important. But that shouldn't be it. 
I am to have the same attitude of Jesus, the attitude of a servant. My church is the same to have the same attitude as Jesus, the attitude of a servant. Am I serving? Is my church serving? Am I part of it? John wrote in 1 John 3, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? If there's no pity, no compassion. Folks, if we're to grow together, then we need to grow in service, an outward expression of the body of Christ to the world so that the, church, the, the world may see, not just hear, but see our love. The third truth is this. If we're going to grow together, then we need to grow in Christ-likeness. Now, this should be a no-brainer. By the way, if you type Christ-likeness into your computer, it will not like it. It will want to change it to something else. It's going to underline it in red and say, hey, that's not a word. Well, here it is. And this, this is what it means. It means being more like Christ. If we're going to grow together, then we have to grow to be more like Christ. The vision statement of Grace Fellowship is pretty simple. And that is that uh, what we want from our members is for everyone who's a part of Grace Fellowship to believe and to grow in their belief. That's essential. We want you to come to faith and to continue to grow in that. To belong to a grace group where you can connect with other believers. That connection, that intimacy is important. But also to become more like Jesus daily in our attitude and our action. To become more like Jesus with each passing day. In other words, well, parents, maybe you've had someone come up to you and say, your son or your daughter looks just like you. Occasionally I get that with Jay. Someone will come up and say, I can see the resemblance. And I'll go, yeah, he is a handsome devil, isn't he? What we want, th- this should be our heart's desire, is when people look at us, they see Jesus. And when people look at Grace Fellowship, they see Jesus. They don't need to see Jimmy. They don't need to see Bob. They don't need to see Tom. They don't need to see George. They don't need to see Jermaine. What they need is to see Jesus. Because that makes the difference. That helps us to know that we're growing up because we're getting more and more and more like Jesus. Let's consider these last verses that in in. Ephesians 4 that we're going to look at today, beginning with verse 13. Now, Paul's already said this is about growing, and he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, that is complete, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by its every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
We are together to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. To look more like Jesus. Every part necessary. If we're going to grow together, then we have to grow in unity. And it takes work. We have to grow in serving. And that takes work. And we have to grow to be more like Christ. And that takes surrender. You thought I was going to say work, didn't you? It takes surrender. It's getting up every day and saying, Jesus, I don't belong to me. I belong to you. And I belong to the body of Christ. And today, I want to live as the person you called me to be. To live at a higher level. To live according to the high calling that you have in my life. Our call to grow up is not a call to grow alone. We're to grow together. To be more like Jesus. And when we do... We bring glory to God. We fulfill our calling. We encourage our fellow believers. And we grow the kingdom. That's what it takes. Growing up. And growing up together. To make a real difference.